Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. The rate of gun deaths in this country has hit the highest level since the mid-1990s, more than 45,000 fatalities in each of the years 2020 and 2021. High-profile public mass killings have become a steady part of our news diet. An 18-year-old white male has been arrested and charged with first-degree murder for a mass shooting at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, in what authorities called an act of racially motivated violent extremism. Authorities say at least 10 people have been reported dead from the shooting, which took place in a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo on Saturday afternoon. A mass shooting at a 4th of July parade in a Chicago suburb this morning left at least six people dead and about two dozen more injured. Investigators continue to search for a motive tonight in the elementary school massacre that left 21 people dead, including 19 children in Uvalde, Texas. There are 14 kids dead in an elementary school in Texas right now. What are we doing? What are we doing? Just days after a shooter walked into a grocery store to gun down African-American patrons, we have another Sandy Hook on our hands. What are we doing? There have been more mass shootings than days in the year. Our kids are living in fear every single time they set foot in the classroom because they think they're going to be next. What are we doing? Now, gun violence of this volume and frequency is uniquely American, our problem in this country. We have to keep in mind, though, that mass shootings cause only a small fraction of gun fatalities in the U.S. Gun deaths are happening nearly every day, inside homes, outside bars, on the streets of many cities. All of this leaves many of us feeling terrified and helpless, and the fear and anxiety that follow mass shootings are very real, even if you weren't physically close to the action. According to a 2019 survey, in fact, one-third of Americans say they avoid certain places and events as a result of shooting-related anxiety. That's our topic this hour with our guest, clinical psychologist and gun safety advocate, Holly Sanger, who is based in Iowa City. Welcome to our program. Oh, thank you for having me. I want to mention that you are a volunteer with Moms Demand Action. This group, it's a grassroots movement advocating for public safety measures that can protect people from gun violence. Moms Demand Action uh, has established a volunteer chapter in every state of this country. It's part of Every Town for Gun Safety. That's the largest gun violence prevention organization in our country. Some 10 million supporters, according to the data I've seen there. So before we talk about specifically about gun-related anxiety here, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your background and Moms Demand Action. How did you first come in contact with it, and how were you inspired to volunteer for this organization? Well, I was attending 
an event at the University of Iowa um, with a photojournalist named Joe Quint. This was in 2017, and he has a photojournalist show about the impact of gun violence on injured survivors, family members of victims, and witnesses who also bear the emotional and psychological scars of those events. And I had, after Sandy Hook, I had donated money to Moms Demand Action, but was busy in my life. And after I saw that show by Joe Quint, I I was really struck by, if not now, when? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it is time to get involved. It is time to get active. Because the, you know, we often in the news hear about a shooting, but very rarely do we follow up on what happens to those people who were either shot or injured or the family members of people who were killed. And that these scars last decades, they don't go away. And yet once it's not so much in the public eye, we forget about that. And, and so I just felt a calling to do something. And so you volunteered and have for how many years with Moms Demand Action? Yes, since 2017, I was the local group lead. So Moms Demand Action has a chapter in every state, and then there are local groups. And so I inherited the local group from a wonderful mentor. And unfortunately, we tend to get more people volunteering with us after a mass shooting. Right. It inspires other people in the way that I was inspired. Enough is enough. It's time to do something. And so you know, our local group has grown and grown and grown and is very, very active, especially in the community, not just around um, gun violence safety issues, but also in some supporting the communities that may need extra assistance. For example, we provide meals once a month to a local organization. So it's just about being present in the community and, and building connection and bonds. Yeah. And we'll talk about this a little bit later in, in when I ask you for, for some tips about how each of us feeling the anxiety, the stress of um, this gun violence epidemic, uh, you know, taking action, such as working with a group, such as Moms Demand Action, can be good therapy for anyone, including you, I assume. Absolutely. Because otherwise we can end up feeling really paralyzed. And that's no good because we all have to do our lives every day. And especially for parents, it's so important for us to be modeling behavior that is acknowledging the fear and the anxiety, but also saying, but this is how we're going to live our lives. This is what we're going to do about it. Does your volunteer work for Moms Demand Action, does that tie in to your expertise as a a clinical psychologist? Is is that define your role in that group somehow? No, (laughs) actually, actually, it really hasn't, except I will say the exception would be that we do a lot of work tabling and a lot of work reaching out to survivors of gun violence. And a lot of people will will think they're not a survivor and they actually are because a survivor just means you have been exposed in some way. And so anybody who has had a family member suicide, anybody who has had a kid in school and gotten a text from that kid that something's going on in the school, all of those are survivors. And especially in Iowa City, when I think about the University of Iowa shooting in 1991, that still reverberates in the community. And people remember, who were here then, remember exactly what they were doing, exactly what was happening. And it's it may not be in the forefront of their mind, but it, it lurks in the conscious, you know, in our consciousness. 
As, as a clinical psychologist, uh, how often do you deal with people who come to your practice needing help and you find out they're, they're suffering from gun-related trauma? You know, that has happened most frequently after a local shooting. At least that's what people would present with. So after the um, shooting at the Coral Ridge Mall in 2015, um, we had a number of people call into our practice asking for assistance. We try to prioritize people when they call in with that kind of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And and But generally, I think where this has come up most in my practice has been one with people who might be suicidal. And so part of my job is to check to make sure how do they stay safe? And one of those questions is, do they have guns in the home? And if they do, are they willing to negotiate to have somebody remove them from the home for a limited period of time until they're feeling better? The other thing that has come up more, not again as a presenting issue, but with I work with a lot of couples and parents and it will just sort of, they'll say things like, well, I'm worried about my kid because of this, this, and this. And then they say, and I'm really scared to send them to school because what happens if there's a gun shooting? Which speaks to the notion that you mentioned, I think, in the intro that, you know, one third of Americans are avoiding certain places and events. This is now part of our consciousness in a way that it shouldn't have to be and has never been before. And so it, it'll show up as sort of a, a secondary issue, not so much a presenting issue. I've, I've noticed that, and I have to assume everybody has noticed that, too, with all these mass shootings in the news, that you'll be in a, a beautiful setting. I'll, you know, I can remember being in a, a nice concert in the evening in the open air in the downtown, and then I'll look around and it will occur to me, that could happen here. We are really vulnerable. Any of these, you know, there are hundreds, yes. hundreds of people around. It could happen here. This would be a potential target. And and that's the type of anxiety you're talking about in part, right? Exactly. Exactly. I was at a James Taylor concert a couple of years ago in the Quad Cities. And I remember walking in and sitting down with my husband and my friends and looking around and thinking, how would I get out of here? Right. <laughs> and I realized, well, I wouldn't probably. And then I thought, oh, I need to figure out, our group needs to figure out how we can reach out in different kinds of ways. So again, it's that turning that anxiety and fear into action to reach out in the community more, to, to do more things, because this is just a constant. And sadly, you, you know, it can be in a movie theater, it can be in a church, it can be at a parade. This is, it's just endemic. Right. And, and, and your question there, how do I get out of here that we are thinking such things? I remember years ago, I've interviewed a number of, you know, combat soldiers suffering from PTSD, and they would come into the studio and beforehand give me usually, a, you know, a heads up, say, listen, I have PTSD. I'll be checking out my surroundings. You may find, find it a, a bit strange, but that's what I need to do with my type of anxieties. And typically they would like to sit in a corner where they can view the entire room and the exit. Yeah, so, 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 so that ties in, doesn't it? It absolutely does. Um, and, and when you think about how busy our lives are and all the things we're trying to manage, both just in our physical bodies, but also psychologically, if you think about the sort of wear and tear of having this background anxiety, am, how am I going to be safe? How, are my, how can I keep my family safe? And there's a term called allostatic load, which refers to the cumulative burden of chronic stress. And so what that really means is 
when the environmental challenges exceed our individual ability to cope, we're in what's called allostatic overload. And that is not good for us. We are not designed as, as a species to be under chronic stress, especially when uncertainty is a critical part of that. Mm-hmm. In, in a little bit, I want to ask you about coping tips that you mm-hmm. can give us uh, and perhaps when we need to seek professional help, when the, uh, the tips that you give us uh, that we can do at home or with our families, talking with our children or our spouse, don't work when we need to. But I want to explore a little bit more about the different ways in which you say presenting. And of course, I know that's a clinical expression. We, we often say, you know, <laughs> co- common uh, symptoms is another way of putting it, how it presents itself in, in a person. Because I understand in reading about this that, you know, it presents itself or is symptomatic in, in different ways in different people. And some people may not recognize their own symptoms of this type of anxiety or the symptoms in a, in a loved one. Oh, that's so on point because there's no right way to react to a senseless tragedy, whether that's a child or whether that's an adult. And so some of us will do what's called acting in, which means we withdraw and shut down and internalize our feelings and then some act out. So, you know, really externalizing our feelings and it can look like, Uh, That presentation can look like talking nonstop or hypervigilance or moodiness, being very, very quiet, being afraid to go places. And so there's, it's not a one size fits all. And that, that is what makes this so, well, this is what makes it important for people to be aware of what they're feeling, what people in their family may be feeling and checking in because you know, unfortunately, if a kid withdraws and gets really quiet, we might just think, oh, they're in a, a bad mood or they're just sad or whatever. And if we don't check in to find out what's going on and make it okay for them to talk about it, then that's those symptoms are probably going to get worse over time. All right. If you just joined us, uh, we're talking about gun violence anxiety. You may have it and not know it, or a family member, even if you're not, haven't been directly affected by gun violence or a loved one, talking about how common it is, how it expresses itself, how to treat, how to cope with it in a society uh, we have uh, at this day and age uh, suffering from a gun violence uh, epidemic. And my guest is a clinical psychologist and gun safety advocate, Holly Sanger. So we can... There are different ways this presents itself, different symptoms and different people. So how do we know when we're suffering from this anxiety? I mean, it seems like it would lend itself to an, sort of an online questionnaire uh, where you would be <laughs> ranked. I don't know if such a thing exists. How, how can you say this is, this is causing problems in my life? Yeah. So I think it, it, again, awareness is so critical to this. And so that may mean checking in with a loved one or a good friend to say, do you notice anything if just to sort of verify what you're feeling, but um, are you having trouble sleeping? Are you using alcohol more? Are you avoiding things? Ruminating is really a critical cue that you may be suffering from this. So ruminating is just, you can't sort of stop thinking about oh, what would I do if this? Or what if I send my kid to school? And it, I don't know if you could hear in my voice, but that's the way we say it to ourselves. Well, what if? Yeah. And that's activating a part of our nervous system that is designed to identify threat and have us respond in one of four ways. 
And ruminating is very, it, you get in a loop and it's hard to get out of that loop. And so I think, you know, we might, some people might just call it worry. Other things are people may be nauseous. They may feel depressed or sad for no reason. And, you know, it's interesting as I've watched myself over time, when I, whenever a news report comes through or some, a feed comes in through my social media that there's been a shooting, my stomach just sinks and I just feel deflated. And what I've learned is let myself have that. <laughs> And then tomorrow I'll get back to work or whenever I can. And, um, you know, we always want to honor our feelings, but also stay aware of them so that we do know what's going on. And sometimes this is going to look like snappiness and irritability. Mm -hmm. So again, we each have our own idiosyncratic ways of reacting to stress. And so just being attuned to what's going on for you, for the individual, and then checking it out with other people. So talk a little bit more about this, because uh, uh, you don't want to dwell on the news, but you're saying you want to give yourself permission to feel whatever you're feeling and so that you're not in denial. Is that what you mean? Right, right. And and it's interesting because I talked about acting in and acting out. And then there is a sort of a third thing that we're seeing. And this is where um, people just become inured to it. And I think one of the saddest moments I had was I was working with some students from Students Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. And one of them actually said, well, it isn't if, it's when when there's going to be a shooting at our school. Mm-hmm. And it was said in such a blasé manner. And I thought, wow. And and we all need some denial, okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think Freud said people who are depressed are actually just more realistic than the rest of us. <laughs> And he didn't say it that casually, but, but I think this notion that if we're so inundated with the images, the sounds, the media coverage of these events, or having uh, safety drills in the schools on a regular basis, that for some, it's just going to be whatever, whatever. But that doesn't mean it's not impacting them. And we know that there's really good research that shows especially with kids in school, the impact on their attention levels, uh, which impacts how much they learn, and also sometimes some social withdrawal. And so the other, you know, another indicator is, is this impacting relationships? You know, for example, I read a lot and I found in a period of time when there were a number of these shootings that I I couldn't read because I couldn't focus. And reading is one of my core self-care measures. Yeah. And so it was really disconcerting for me to think, well, wait a minute, this is what I always use to sort of give myself a little checkout. Um, but I can't even do that now. And so that was a sign to me, okay, you need to activate other parts of your support system. And that's really what we're talking about is how to have a really well-rounded support system for all the stuff that life throws at us. But in particular, as we're talking about today, for the impact of gun violence. Okay, you've given given us a lot of uh, good tips there. We'll talk about some more, I'm sure, during the course of the hour. But uh, a key question would be, um, how do you know when you can't cope alone or as a family? How do you know when to reach out for pr- professional help? Yeah, and so I, I I think part of that is really about 
I just not functioning the way I don't feel like myself. I don't feel like I am functioning in the world in the ways I'm used to. I can't stop being anxious about this, or I'm really depressed about this and shutting down. And by the way, anybody can seek therapy at any time for anything and then uncover deeper things that might be going on. Right. And that's part, so that's it, part it is, of the, the stigma of, of seeking therapy in some cases we still have in our society. We've got to get rid of that, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And the other problem now is that we don't have enough therapists. <laughs> and so, you know, people will be on wait lists for four, five, six months. And usually people call to get in when they're saying, my, my distress about this is high enough that I need help now. And then we're, you know, we're leaving them sort of hanging out there. We as a profession, um, and Iowa in particular, I know, has a shortage of, of therapists, especially in rural areas. With the uptick in gun violence, and of course, that's feeding on the uptick in, uh, you know, buying weapons. It's a, a vicious uh, circle there. Does that uh, then, has that translated to, to your uh, practice, uh, need, uh, seeing more patients on, related uh, to, to this type of trauma? You know, I would say that this whole nation has been living with a degree of trauma for the last seven, eight, nine years. Mm -hmm. And I think there are so many traumas that we are dealing with from racial injustice to climate change to political strife that all these things are sort of feeding off each other and like making a really unhealthy stew that gun violence becomes just one more thing in that, that we are trying to cope with a lot all the time. And again, we're inundated with these stories. If you just joined us, uh, we're talking about um, anxiety caused by gun violence. Even if it didn't happen to you or a loved one, we're all feeling the stress in our society. So my guest this hour is clinical psychologist and gun safety advocate, Holly Sanger. When we come back after a short break, I want to ask Holly how the pandemic has figured into this uptick in gun purchases and gun violence and resulting gun anxiety. Also, what to do if you have a friend or a loved one who has been directly affected by gun violence. I have a friend who was shot and, and barely survived uh, a random act of gun violence uh, last year. So I, this is a really a firsthand question for me, but I know it is, unfortunately, for a lot of our listeners. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment uh, talking about anxiety caused by gun violence. I'm Ben Kiefer with Holly Sanger. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
focusing this hour on anxiety caused by not only mass shootings, they turned out to be a a small sliver of the gun-related fatalities uh, we have in this country. We're at the highest level since the mid-1990s in terms of fatalities, 45,000 gun deaths uh, in each of the years 2020 and 2021. Uh, so we're taking stock of uh, how we cope with an epidemic of gun violence, how we continue through our days, how we cope with it, how we help our loved ones, our families, our kids. And, and joining me to do that is Holly Sanger. She's a clinical psychologist based in Iowa City, also a gun safety advocate working with Moms Demand Action. I wanted to ask you uh, about the pandemic because we have, you know, you mentioned in our last half hour that there's so many things stressful about our lives these days. And certainly one of them, a big one, has been the pandemic. How has that shaped anxiety we have about gun violence and how does that fit in? Well, I think it, it fits in partially because it's, again, I talked about that allostatic load, which is how much stress can we actually manage And a key part of that is uncertainty. And certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, there was so much uncertainty about how do you get it? How how bad will it be? And so that sort of ramped up a lot of people's anxiety. We actually had a lot of people seeking services as the pandemic went on um, just because of increased anxiety and depression. You know, what we know sadly is that gun sales soared during the pandemic. That is a concern to me because I worry about domestic violence situations. Um, I worry about children being in homes that where there may be a firearm and it's not secured. Mm-hmm. And just sort of this prevalence of a gun is the solution. Right. And it occurs to me, too, that the pandemic, uh, you know, when we could go out we to be in public places, it was in open areas where we could, you know, not be in confined areas. Mm-hmm. But, but then that is a place where we can typically feel uh, vulnerable because of gun violence. You get these visions of, you know, on the news of what can happen in a public area, wide open area. And so uh, this is all about safety, isn't it, when it comes down to it, yes. uh, that yes. we... We feel safest, at least we hope we do. I, I hope everyone listening does, but that's not always the case. We feel safest in our homes. But you're saying, you know, mm-hmm. a, another family member, a person living in our home may have a gun or a collection of guns in the home because it makes them feel safe. Yeah, or or because they like to shoot. You know, it's 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 a hobby or they hunt. And so I'm, I'm going to use this as a way to segue to talking about one of my very favorite programs, which is um, Be Smart for Kids, which is really a gun safety storage program. And it talks about the importance of making sure that if you do have a firearm, that it be kept secured. And secured does not mean um, in your underwear drawer underneath socks. <laughs> it means being locked with ammunition kept separately. It means being locked in a safe um, or if if a safe is impossible, there are you can you can go to the sheriff's office and get a little gun lock, which will preclude you being able to fire the weapon. And this is really an important part of gun safety because, unfortunately, a lot of teens will come home from a bad day. They didn't make a team, or their boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with them. 
And in a moment of just, ugh, my life is terrible, if there is a gun available, it could be used. And the problem with firearms is they're lethal. Mm-hmm. The most lethal way, or one of the most lethal ways. And so so making sure that there's safe storage is really important. And when we look at some of the mass shootings that have happened, there wasn't safe storage. Young people either knew the the code to the safe or or weapons and firearms were just left out. And I think that, you know, that also makes it really dangerous because children are curious. Children and children they're like sponges. They know everything that's going on in the house. Of course. <laughs> and so a kid finds a firearm, you know, in a in a desk drawer and pulls it out and they have no concept of the real consequence of this. Mm-hmm. They they can't. And and then we have a child either killed or wounded in significant ways. And we don't call those accidental shootings. We call them unintentional shootings, not accidental, because it's not an accident if you have left a firearm where somebody can get it. It's almost like a, a pre-programmed accident waiting to happen. Absolutely. It's why we wear seatbelts, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder, you know, when we talk about uh, things to help, um, we, in, we have um, new gun legislation in June. Congress passed its first new gun safety legislation in decades. Bipartisan agreement on that in, to some degree. It included red flag laws and, mm-hmm. and, and other aspects. Um, does this give you hope, Holly? It, it gives me some hope. I'm a little concerned about Iowa, <laughs> to be honest. Um, Why? So Iowa has 302 people die by guns every year. 79% of those are suicides, and that's higher than the national average. And, and as I mentioned before, the rates of gun suicide in rural areas is actually more than double that in urban areas. And so one of the things that I'm concerned about in Iowa is that ballot measure one will be on the ballot in November. And that is a provision that uses a blank. It's, it's sort of codifying the second amendment into the Iowa state constitution, but it adds some more language. And that language is called strict scrutiny. And when you first hear that, I know that I thought, well, strict scrutiny would be a good thing, right? It would be good to have strict scrutiny about gun ownership. and um, But what it actually means is that courts have to use strict scrutiny, which is a kind of judicial analysis that could threaten all of our gun safety laws. How so? Well, it, w- it might make it impossible to have any gun laws. And so there are three other states in the country that have this right now, um, Louisiana, Alabama, and Missouri. And um, so, for example, a felon, felons can't have firearms. A felon could, in theory, say in one of those states, or if Iowa passes this in Iowa, I want to have a firearm. And under under this new provision in the Iowa State Constitution, I should be allowed to have one. And I think what some of the literature that's out about this is that in some of the states that already have this strict scrutiny provision, it's too expensive for state's attorney generals to pursue all these legal cases. Um, and so it sort of frays away at, at, at gun safety laws. So for example, there might be, there might be no age restriction on who can have a firearm. There might be no permitting or background checks, which are critical 
it would preclude the possibility of having what you referred to, which sometimes are called red flag laws or extreme protective laws, which are really a lovely, elegant solution. And these are these are laws that if somebody is really struggling, very depressed, that those guns, that there's a very sophisticated system through the courts utilizing um, local police and family members where the firearms could be temporarily removed until the person is doing better. Mm-hmm. Well, that keeps all of us safer. And you know, we're in the business of saving lives. Right. You mentioned suicide a few moments ago. I wanted to get out there, our brand new three-digit emergency line for those having thoughts of suicide or just questions. And it's an anonymous line, 988. I don't know if you had anything further to say about uh, how suicide uh, play a part in this gun violence epidemic. Well, six out of every gun deaths are suicides. And that's an average of about 65 deaths a day. And so it is a huge problem. And it is a problem we can partially solve. We can do a lot to solve this problem. Can we eradicate all gun deaths? No. But we can do a lot to try to make this better. And from, for example, making sure that there are services in rural communities. And that's one of the things that the pandemic has actually brought us. I remember 10 years ago, somebody said to me at a at a meeting, oh, in 10 years, we're all going to be doing telehealth. And I said at that point, well, then I'll, I'll retire. I have found that I love telehealth. And whether I'm working with clients I saw previously, or I'm starting with somebody new, by and large, it is incredibly effective. And this is really important because it means we can expand our availability to constituents across states. I mean, across our state or in other you know, locations that might not have therapists. And so, and it, it does work. It's a really wonderful way to provide services and solve some of these rural Iowa problems that we are faced with. So glad to have with us uh, this hour. We're finishing up the hour with a clinical psychologist and gun safety advocate, Holly Sanger, talking about the anxiety all of us are feeling to some degree or another because of the gun violence epidemic in this country. Holly, I want to raise a, a different facet of this, uh, very personal to me, with uh, tens of thousands of gun fatalities per year in this country Many of us, many of those listening, have been directly affected by gun violence. And if not directly affected, uh, most of us have had a connection to someone who has uh, been a victim of gun violence. Um, I have, in fact, a close friend who was shot in 2021, nearly killed by a random shooter, someone he didn't even know. Um, And in talking with him, it's clear, it's made so clear to me how this type of violence uh, changes not only his life, he fortunately survived, but he is forever, has to deal with the trauma, um, his thinking and his family's lives. There, Everybody's changed. The ripples go out incredibly. Speak, speak to that. What tips can you share for me or for those in similar yeah. situations who know someone directly impacted by gun violence? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, and I think part of it is to not be afraid as a friend or a family member to just check in. How are you doing? And not the casual, how are you doing? But how are you doing? If you want to talk about this, I'm here and I will listen. And that means that if, you know, as the friend, you might have to hold some of your own anxiety around that. 
but it's it's sort of normalizing, helping the other be able to normalize their reaction to what's happened because these things are life changing. I, you know, I can remember I was at a um, every town has a an annual convention, and I was at one of one of them a couple of years ago in St. Louis, and there was a mom pushing her kid in a wheelchair, and the the kid was probably fourteen years old, and she had been shot in a sort of random event and their lives were changed forever, both psychologically, financially, legally, that this doesn't just go away. And so I think when we can normalize and really listen, and the listening I'm talking about is listening to understand, not listening to reply. Mm. Because all too often in our conversations, especially with people we're close to, we're not really listening to understand. We already know what we're going to say, which means we're not actually listening to them. Yeah. And so, so I think opening up this idea of I'm here to listen. And then I think also to encourage them to seek help if they're not. One of the most wonderful organizations is the Everytown Survivor Network, which if anybody goes to everytown.org and looks up Everytown Survivor Network. This is an amazing network for survivors. And survivors is, you know, we use that if you've been exposed to gun violence, Mm -hmm. if you've been threatened or wounded or somebody you know or care for was killed, they can join this and it's full of resources. So you can learn to be an activist or you can have groups that you meet and people that you can talk to that provide you connection and support because that's one of the way we get we get through trauma yeah. is through our community and through our support systems and often those are the places who really I mean a place like the survivor network provides a, a venue that a lot of people can't find anywhere else and so not just being passive but seeking out I can feel better. Will I always have these memories? Will I, yeah, I was in the military. And so like, if I hear a firearm, I know what it sounds like. And so if I hear a car backfire, I have an instant startle response. I'm thinking of those um, veterans with PTSD you were talking about. And, and so that's normal, but then how quickly can I sort of return to baseline calm? Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things, do the things that bring you joy, whether that's gardening or kayaking or reading a book or watching movies or hanging out with friends. All of those are ways to connect to what I call the and, A-N-D. And that is, we live in a world that is incredibly stressful and is full of trauma and loss. And at the same time, there are beautiful, wonderful things in this world that we can connect to. And it's it's not an either or proposition. It's how do we learn to cultivate the joy side while still acknowledging bad stuff happens. Right. And 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 I think, you know, one of the care tips, self-care tips, or perhaps for a child is, you know, there's this term these days, doom scrolling, and you can get so worried <laughs> about it that you just bathe in it and regularly do that. And and, you know, you, your thought about, you know, finding the joy in life. Let's recognize what's happened in our news. It doesn't mean not be aware of what's going on uh, around us in our country, in our mm-hmm. state, but do not fixate on it. Is that a way to put it? 
Yeah. And, and sometimes a, a useful thing to do is to say, okay, I'm going to worry about this really well. I'm going to do, it's called prescribed worry. I'm going to do a really good job of worrying about this fear mm-hmm. for 10 minutes. And this is, this can be really helpful with kids to be able to say, okay, let's talk about what you're afraid of for a prescribed amount of time. Give yourself or when your children a prescribed amount of worry, a time to say, let's really worry well about this, which is to say, um, what can we do right now? And if there's nothing we can do right now, when might we do something? This this touches on something you mentioned earlier. My advocacy work is one of the ways that I have found uh, helps me manage my anxiety and my fear about what's happening with gun violence in this country. And so when I can do something and be active, I'm not just passively succumbing to doom scrolling. And then figuring out also what are the ways to distract yourself if the worry pops back up? Because it will until you sort of train yourself away from that. And so, you know, meditating, doing yoga, listening to music or dancing, because what we're trying to do is get back into our bodies in less anxious ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to my friend who had been near fatally shot uh, in 2021. Oh. One of the unexpected things he said, well, you know, there are those people that you run into you know, every half year or every few months in your life. And, you know, maybe at the f- farmer's market or at the grocery store, mm. and you don't see them all that often. And he was surprised he would run into people and it would be the typical, well, how things been? And he was, it was clear to him that they had not heard that he was nearly fatally shot by a random um, a shooter. So what surprised him as a stress was... um what people, when do I just keep that out of the conversation? Or when do I say, actually, I was shot and nearly killed a few months ago? I think this is, a, you know, it's it's a time to really think, of, know yourself, know oneself and think, what are, the, what are the boundaries I want to set around this? We don't owe an explanation of our trauma to anybody else. Because unfortunately, often when we do offer that up, the response we get is sometimes not very helpful. Like, it's not a response that actually says, terrible, I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do? Mm. Do you need anything? Yeah, Th- that is a good response. He did mention, he said, often people will just say, several degrees removed from actually being shot, they will bring to mind as quickly as possible something, a cousin who was shot or something that they heard of that's somehow related to being shot. And he was, he has learned that that's not helpful for him. But your response, that, that is a wonderful thing to keep in mind for someone who's experienced gun violence, uh, just to feel authentically sorry and say you're sorry and ask if there's any way you can help. I think that's a wonderful way to end this conversation, Holly Sanger. I wonder if you could perhaps uh, tell us quickly what are some other, we mentioned during the hours, what are some resources that people can check out if um, they feel touched uh, by gun violence and and the anxiety connected to it? Yeah, well, certainly I think if um, reach out to the state chapter of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense or to Giffords Group or Brady, all of them are are really good and do nice work. Um, I think finding, um, for me, that allowed me to find a community in which I didn't have to explain why this mattered to me. And I knew that there were other people there that were working for a common theme and, and having 
fun. I mean, some of my best friends now are, are people I met through Moms Demand Action. And, and they're not just my colleagues in, in gun violence prevention, but also really good friends. I think also there are some, some really interesting books um, that people can look for. Um, there's a book called Things Might Go Terribly, Horribly Wrong which is by Kelly Wilson. And it's, it's a really nice approach to when things do go wrong, how we can manage that. Um, there's also another book I really like. I, I was just at a training with this author. His name is Jonah Paquette, P-A-Q-U-E-T-T-E. And um, this book is called The Happiness Toolbox. And I'm not advocating um, what, what we now call toxic positivity, but we can do things to increase our degree of happiness. Um, again, it gets back to that and, that terrible things can happen. And I also can sit there and hold my puppy and feel so full of joy and happiness. And both those things can coexist. And um, and I think, you know, every town has um, so much information for everyone about um, what's happening in your own state to where you can take action. Um, and obviously, I do think action matters because we aren't left feeling hopeless, helpless, paralyzed, because that's a hard way to get through the world. It sure is. And you've been so helpful with your expertise. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us, Holly Sanger, a clinical psychologist based in Iowa City. Holly, take care of yourself. Take care of your patients. I'm sure you're doing a wonderful job based on, based on what I'm hearing from you. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Oh, well, thank you for this opportunity. It's, it's, um, it's a way to be an advocate, right? <laughs> right, right. Very important. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. River to River today, produced by Caitlin Troutman. Uh, our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.